It's called the Condom Collective. They actually distribute around a million condoms on college campuses every year. I will say I collected one too many protector wand condoms at Harry (laughs) Potter conferences. It was... (laughs) The, the pun was, it was a little too much after the first few. That's amazing. I never got one of those condoms. Yeah, I never got one either. Do you call your area a wand? No. No. Protect your Hermione bag. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Hermione's bottomless purse. There's a missed opportunity there for Chamber of Secrets to be used. I'm just... There you go. Protect your chamber. Yeah. Protect your <laughs> chamber. <laughs> Welcome to Millennial, the home of pretend adulting and real talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Happy to be uncanceled this week. I didn't listen to last week's episode, not much, but I heard enough to hear I was canceled. And I was like, you know what? I'm out. I'm not listening. Uh, you know what, Andrew? You should have kept listening and then you would have heard us talk about how much we still need you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, shit. I, okay. Wait, I'll go back. <laughs> I can't remember where it was. Maybe Andre cut it out, but um, for sure we did talk about the struggle of not having you around. Maybe Andre was like, oh, God, his ego doesn't need any more flattery. Andrew doesn't need to see this. Quietly delete. No, I was going to say, Andrew, Pam is a lot nicer than I am. I was going to say, was. Why are you talking about your cancellation in the past tense? Hey, hey. Today's show will determine whether you get uncanceled. So no pressure. It is possible one of (laughs) us will get in trouble with our listeners this week. Maybe. Very possible. Uh, But we have mentioned Andre a couple times now. Thank you, Andre, for editing last week's episode of Millennial. He helps me out with podcast editing, which I really appreciate. So I can take a break here and there. But anyway, before we get into our plan topics today, just wanted to talk about a little bit of breaking news. Fox News has settled with Dominion voting systems to the tune of what, Laura, about $750 million? Yeah. Somewhere around there. One of the biggest settlements in history. I did get that for sure from the news reports that I read. Um, They settled while the trial was basically about to begin, like the jury was seated Things were ready to go, and then they settled on Tuesday. It already looked so bad for Fox News. These text messages came out. Well, Mm -hmm. who was it? Tucker, who said, I hate Trump, or Hannity said, I hate Trump. Like, It just exposed what fucking hypocrites they were. And the trial hadn't even started yet. Those text messages just came out during Discovery. And they were going to get Hannity and uh, Rupert Murdoch and others uh, up on the witness stand. So it was just going to be... All kinds of bad news for Fox News. And they decided, well, it's probably best if we settle. Well, they're probably thinking that Americans have a very short attention span, which is true. So rather than get themselves embroiled in a long, drawn out trial that would be highly public, why not just settle it so that we can move on and, you know, spin up some other bullshit narrative that we accuse another group of people of, you know, interfering with the 2020 election, even though we know that's a bullshit narrative. I also just have to believe that Trump actually getting indicted probably played a bit of a role in all of this as well. 
Um, You know, it it behooves their narrative to continue to advocate for him. And going into a trial, trial where all of these leaked messages would have been brought up as evidence wouldn't have looked great for their credibility. Obviously, like we don't we know that they don't have much credibility, but for their faithful audience, it just wouldn't have looked great. Oh, we would have loved it here at Millennial. We would have absolutely loved love the trial. Mess. You're gearing up for co- <laughs> we love mess. I love mess. I was a little low actually. It's a seven hundred eighty-seven point five million dollar settlement. Call me optimistic, but I am hopeful this will be a learning lesson for Fox News that you can't irresponsibly spew and sling bullshit at this level. They were making up batshit insane and and spreading batshit insane theories about these voting systems and how they were rigged. And that's that's how uh, Trump lost, because these voting systems were were messed up. And of course, Dominion said, hey, our voting systems are fine. Fuck you. We're taking you to trial. So maybe Fox News will scale back a little bit about other topics. The cynic in me thinks that they'll pivot so they may not do this exact thing uh, again, but in a landscape where, you know, ratings for cable news networks are falling all the time, they're desperate um, for viewers. I think that Fox News and I think cable news more largely may be a changing landscape, but a changing landscape is not going to stop people like the executives at Fox News from doing shit like this. They just might not do the same thing again. Well, anyway, uh, that was a very big story. We are very big disappointed that Fox News wouldn't continue to be embarrassed. But oh, well, at least they have to pay up big time. I mean, doesn't Tucker Carlson air every night, Monday through Friday? That's an embarrassment enough, I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if only if only his viewers agreed with you. I know. We did turn on Fox News just before recording. And and can you believe it? They actually weren't covering this story. They weren't talking Weird. about the settlement. Yeah, they, they were just in commercials. Everybody else was talking about it, though. Well, anyway, we appreciate major settlements against Fox News and also our listeners, especially those who spread the word about the show and leave us great reviews. We would really appreciate if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you're enjoying the show because it helps us uh, spread the word about the show. And here's a review from Merstro on Apple Podcasts. They said, I've been listening to this podcast for its entire history and even previous shows started by the hosts. I feel like I've grown up with them. Not only is the audio quality stellar, (laughs) that's why i included this review (laughs) but the hosts are funny smart no it's not i'll read i'll read another one focused on you laura in the weeks ahead don't worry (laughs) but the hosts are funny smart and intentional i can't say enough good things i'm really grateful for the consistency of this podcast and i will remain a loyal listener all my love to andrew laura and pam thank you Marstro. that's really nice indeed thank you I think I'm the funny one, Laura's the smart one, and Pam's the intentional one. Fair? (laughs) I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I feel like Pam checks all three boxes. Stop. (laughs) I was just going to say that we're all intentional. I feel like Pam is an all-arounder. We choose our words very carefully (laughs) on this show. We I just try. wanted to assign each of us one of those since there's three and she gave, they gave That's three. That's fair. But. It's like boy band archetypes, but for podcasters. I won't take the smart one. Oh I'll- my God, we should make a promo poster. Funny, smart, intentional. 
That's millennial. It's our new catchphrase. <laughs> well, Chloe, Andrew's found more work for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you an easy recommendation this week to, to make up for this. There we go. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little music. One of my favorite artists got me thinking over the last couple of weeks. Every once in a while, we see an artist protest the government's actions by canceling performances in an affected area that they're protesting. Recently, my fave, one of my faves, Orville Peck, I think I recommended him on the show a while ago, who's openly gay. Um, He had been asked by fans if he was going to cancel shows in Tennessee in light of what's been going on there, which I'll touch on in a moment. And he said on his Instagram, to all those asking why I haven't canceled my upcoming shows in Tennessee, given the current legislation affecting the LGBTQIA plus community, understand that it is in times like this that our visibility and support matters the most. Please do not abandon our drag friends, family, and our trans brothers and sisters living in these states. They need us there now more than ever. You are not sticking it to these governments by not showing up. You are only hurting the communities. So what he's referring to last month... Tennessee Governor Bill Lee restricted drag show performances from happening on public property, and he signed a bill prohibiting gender-affirming surgeries and hormone treatments. So very bad stuff happening in in Tennessee. We see similar legislation coming up in many other states. His fans, I guess, may have been encouraged to ask because other artists have canceled shows for various reasons. Not this reason in particular, but just to run off a couple other examples in recent years, artists including Korn, My Chemical Romance, Iron Maiden, Green Day, The Killers have all canceled shows in Russia over the last year in protest of Putin's war. In 2016, Brian Adams canceled a show in protest of a Mississippi law that permitted some private businesses and religious orgs to refuse service to gay couples. And at the time, he said, I cannot in good conscience perform in a state where certain people are being denied their civil rights. Then in another instance, Demi Lovato, Nick Jonas, Bruce Springsteen, and Pearl Jam canceled North Carolina concerts after the state passed their 2016 bathroom bill, which got a lot of attention nationwide, and that forced trans people to use public restrooms that didn't correspond to their gender identity. The bill was widely criticized across the country and later repealed. Now, on the flip side of that, Brandi Carlisle did not cancel her shows at the time and said the following, I'm a small artist and I'm gay. Many of my fans are gay as well. To cancel my shows in North Carolina would further oppress my fans who are hurt by this legislation, who worked hard to suppress it, and who need a place where they can come together. So my question to you two is, should artists like this, uh, like like Orville and um, others, cancel shows? I actually kind of feel like they should. But let's hear from you two first. I think with Orville Peck in particular, it's hard to say, especially because he is a country artist and there is very often not very much of a safe space in that genre on the surface level. And so by sheer nature of him being an openly gay country artist, he is at face value kind of creating a safe space for other people who enjoy that genre. Many people that are part of the queer community are also country music listeners, but maybe they don't feel comfortable going to traditional country shows. Um, So I understand what his logic is here with that. At the same time, you know, um, if you have a lot of power and like if your tour could potentially cause detriment to local economy by you canceling it, that's a really great way to protest and sort of put your money where your mouth is. I mean, I know that 
Um, fans of Taylor Swift, for example, she has shows coming up in Tennessee uh, in the coming weeks. She has not said a peep about this, which is not great um, for her image in particular, I feel like, especially since, you know, she came out with a song that directly was meant to help uh, bolster, you know, support for organizations like GLAAD. Um, but I, I do think that sometimes it's a bigger hit coming from larger artists. And I don't know if we should hold smaller artists in that same regard, because it's a tough business and touring is really hard and touring is where smaller artists make the bulk of their money. I do understand that. And I did appreciate that Brandy Carlisle said, I am a small artist when she said I wouldn't be canceling my shows. I know touring is big money. On the other hand, there's other cities they could tour in. They could also, you know, just do extra shows somewhere else. He he could probably do five nights in L.A. and maybe use some yeah. of the money earned there to uh, support trans groups in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, to that point, maybe he still plays the shows in Tennessee, but he says a portion of my merch sales, I'm going to directly donate to local queer organizations that are trying to combat the bad things that the state representatives are doing. I feel kind of mixed on this. I don't know that I believe there's like a binary choice here between they either should or they shouldn't. I think there's a lot of in between of what artists can do. A good example of this was My Chemical Romance. I actually saw them last summer here in Georgia. They were originally supposed to perform at Music Midtown in Atlanta, um, but ultimately they and a bunch of other bands pulled out of that festival because um, we have we have open carry here in Georgia, and they weren't able to restrict that from the festival grounds because it was public property. So ultimately what MCR ended up doing was putting on their show at a venue um, just outside of Atlanta. And, you know, fans were still able to go and enjoy it without necessarily being worried about some Yahoo walking around on a festival ground with guns. So there are choices like that that can be made. I do also think about, the fans who are living in places like this. And it really does suck. Speaking as somebody who grew up in, uh, you know, in Georgia, I grew up, you know, north of Atlanta, about an hour north, like really in the suburbs, very conservative there. And anytime I wanted to do something that was of interest to me, I had to come all the way into Atlanta, which wasn't always accessible to me when I was younger, when I couldn't drive, when I didn't have any money. So I just think about people who may find themselves living in places that would require an even further commute for them to do things that they enjoy. So I think there is a middle ground to be struck here. I don't know if I'm prepared to say what people should do or what the 100% best option is. But I think there are things that artists can do to be true to themselves and their morals and get their point across without necessarily canceling shows. Yeah. That said, I don't blame the ones who do cancel shows because at the end of the day, you have to live with yourself, right? (laughs) 
Right. It might also, and I know we're going to get into this later, Laura, with what you want to talk about, so we don't have to dig into it too much right now, but maybe decisions like this from artists can can spur residents to really think a little deeper about, well, if they're very disturbed too about what's happening in their state, maybe it's time to move out of the state. And I know that can be very difficult for a lot of reasons, but I think it does get people thinking like that, which um, can be pretty powerful too. One of the things I really did take issue with in Orville's statement was you are not sticking it to these governments by not showing up. You are only hurting the communities. I mean, if you cancel the show, they won't get tax dollars, tax revenue from these shows, the the drinks that are sold, the merchandise, their sales tax they're collecting. So actually, you are impacting them. Sure, Orville Peck is not a large artist and the state of Tennessee will never notice the money that is or is not generated because it's relatively so small. But it does say something. It does make a bit of an impact. And it, it, it again, does say to your listeners or your fans, I am really taking the situation seriously. And I strongly disagree to the point that I don't want the state of Tennessee getting a dime from me or my fans at my concert. Yeah, to that point, Andrew, I think for it to really have enough of a financial impact on these states, there would have to be an across-the-board boycott of large performers going there. And that's that's a tough... It's a tall order. Yeah. The 2016 bathroom bill did get pretty close to that, though. I mean, not just major artists, but businesses, organizations were pulling their events out of the state of North Carolina. So that one got enough traction. I guess really with Tennessee, we're just not that at that level of traction. 2016 and 2023 actually are pretty similar in that they're anti both anti trans bills. I guess, unfortunately, we're just conditioned more to these views and this backlash than we were in 2016. And thus, there's there's not as much resistance as we saw last time. But I think that's what's tough, too, is that you look at like both of those things are kind of comparable in terms of both the people that they're targeting and also the causes that people are trying to fight for. And so to see so many uh, people rallying up in support of pulling out as a means of protest just for the bathroom bill, for example, it's kind of now become an expectation for people to do the same sort of thing. Um, On the other hand, relating it to another larger issue, we've seen time and time again, the public begging major movie studios to pull out of uh, Georgia, for example, where they're doing a lot of filming because of the Georgia legislator and what they're trying to, uh, you know, fight against. And that that never happens. So it's a very interesting middle ground for sure. And I don't really know what the right move is, but I I do think that like, if anything, we should, um, as a society, maybe stop trying to hold individuals accountable that are still trying to do good with their platforms and start trying to hold larger uh, companies accountable for doing business Mm. in these states, because that's when really they're going to kind of start feeling the sting of their actions. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say too, the issues are really interesting to look at here. Part of me thinks that maybe in 2016, the bathroom bill was easier for people to get behind because it's universally understandable. Everyone has to go to the bathroom. 
not everyone needs gender affirming care. So I wonder if that disconnect for people has created less traction. Um, And I'm not just talking about artists, I just think in general, because we noticed amongst the regular population, everyone seemed to have an opinion about the bathroom bill. And across the board, if you talked to liberals, conservatives, for the most part, people were like, this is a waste of fucking time. Everybody has to pee. <laughs> so I, I wonder if just the complexity of the issue is creating a disconnect for people or maybe people are just burned out because it's just been. Yeah. I one outrage after another. I, I think it's that, too. Like I was saying earlier, we're just kind of like more conditioned to this. And and to your point, just more burnt out on, oh, another day, another one of these crazy uh, viewpoints. I mean, in, in part because this is what we see happen during every Democratic presidency. The culture wars flare up on the right because they need something to complain about. And I mean, no drag shows in public spaces. That's not as private and personal as the bathroom bill, to your point. Yeah, so I guess, I don't know. I'm still kind of conflicted on this situation. I personally, being a big Orville fan, I want to see people like him do something a little more. What that might be, it needs to be further than what it is now. And again, I just take issue with this line about you're not sticking it to the governments because you are. Yeah, that's bullshit. (laughs) And to be fair, you know, I I think that he, he's somebody also who profits from the queer community. And that's where I take issue. It's like when you have an artist, specifically just because we're talking about music, that has um that, that profits off of the queer community, whether it's because they themselves are queer or whether because they have created a safe space for queer individuals within their fan base, that is when it starts to feel a little disheartening if they're not uh, doing more or if they're not at least speaking out in some way. I think like the bare minimum anybody should be able to do is to speak out and disavow uh, acts of hatred and prejudice. That's not asking for very much, especially today and age. And if they want to take it a step further, you know, obviously there are different steps that you can take from, you know, just like we said at the beginning of the discussion, donating to groups that are working hard to go against hateful bills and acts and stuff like that to just like flat out canceling your show. Yeah. But there, there's an easy middle ground to take here. And there's like an easy base minimum that you can do as a good human being. I agree with that. What if Orville Peck, instead of you know, going on with the regularly scheduled show instead of canceling the show. Bloomy. He he held <laughs> Yes. Um okay. he he could do this in public too if you want, Andrew. I was gonna suggest that he could <laughs> hold a free concert uh-huh. and have a suggested donation amount. Yeah. So if people come to that, they can donate. That way, he makes some money. He can donate half the proceeds to Lambda Legal or the Trevor Project or something. And Tennessee doesn't make any money <laughs> off of his yeah. show. I mean, that's one solution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- I guess they would still make money off of like food or drink. But I like your point that you're making here. Rex Listening Live said canceling the show is one less queer space in the state. That is true. It is just one night. Sure, that could be one very important night that changes somebody's life. Maybe they meet somebody at the concert that they never would have other- otherwise, and, and that's really amazing. But 
it's it's not like uh, we're calling for like gay bars to be shut down in, in protest here. I mean, on the other hand, too, it's like you could also argue that it's more powerful to see a group like that show up regardless of what they're trying to expel in that state. I know you talked about people moving out, but there's also been a lot of people uh, championing against moving out of more conservative bubbles, because once you lose all of the people that are left-leaning in any way, then it's way easier for legislation to get passed that goes against what those people are for to begin with. So then you're creating more conservative bubbles in America instead of trying to figure out how to push the needle in the right direction. It's a very good point. Yeah. And I'll also just say, I mean, I'm biased because I'm a Southerner, um, but the South is the most diverse part of this country. Um, so you can think of it maybe less as like we're we're backwards and crazy and more like we're trapped <laughs> by these state legislatures <laughs> and gerrymandering. Yeah. So to Pam's point, it does, you know, raise the question of what about all the regular people who just happen to live in this part of the country? Do they not get an outlet you know, what does right. access look like for them? To that point, um, Brock in our Discord pointed out um, that uh, he is going to the Taylor Swift or one of the Taylor Swift shows in Nashville. Doesn't she have like three different shows coming up in Tennessee? Um, Probably multiple nights. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, he brought up the point that he and some friends are going to the show in Nashville that they waited hours and hours in front of the computer trying to get tickets. Thank you. Ticketmaster, um, and also pointed out that Taylor Swift lives in Tennessee. Um, so if we're using her as an example of somebody who, you know, could potentially cancel shows to stick it to the state, her just living in Tennessee brings in a shit ton of money for the state anyway. Property taxes, baby. Yeah. Plus all the tourism. Well, she can tell her fans not to go to Tennessee anymore, and they'd probably listen to her. I will say, but the yes, Swifties, I, I can sympathize. Yeah, the Swifties do uh, follow her lead. I will give you that. Yeah, <laughs> but I do understand, especially with the Ticketmaster set. You, you, I know you don't want to go to the shows. It's so I've I've had tickets to shows that were canceled. It's crushing. In better news, when it comes to bullshit bills happening in states like Tennessee and Florida, it looks like some major donors are scoffing at some of the batshit things uh, that people like Ron DeSantis. AKA putting fingers are doing. Was that my note or Laura? Was that you? No, that is you. Remember. That's okay. you, baby. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny when I wrote it a few days ago, I guess, maybe a little drunk. Right drunk, edit sober. That's my strategy for planning millennial. But <laughs> um, so one donor went on record with the Financial Times, Thomas Peter Fee, who is a top Republican donator donor and said, I have put myself on hold from donating because of Ron's stances on abortion and book banning. Myself and a bunch of friends are holding our powder dry. So some people are really resisting where he stands and what he's doing. Of course, there's been a lot of news around Disney as well. I saw Chris Christie said he was not, Ron DeSantis was not a conservative because of how he's acting just because Disney uh, and him disagree on certain matters. 
So it is nice to see some donors are starting to pull out. And on the other hand, that means we have a higher chance of being stuck with Trump getting the uh, Republican nomination. Although Trump's the stupid one, whereas Ron DeSantis may have been more competent if he were if he had the nomination. So tough situation. But again, donors are are scared. Yeah, it's, you know, really starting to look like the Republican Party, you know, maybe reaping some electoral consequences for just how far down the rabbit hole they've gone. Um, And we're going to get into that here in just a moment. But first, we need to take a quick break and we'll be back after these messages. What a nice transition. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. See, you are the smart one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Andrew, your topic really dovetailed nicely into mine. I want to do a clusterfuck 2023 update specifically around the state of Republican politics, but then use that as an entryway to talk about what people living in these states where these uh, draconian abortion um, and, you know, laws impacting the LGBTQ community are just being handed down left and right. Pam and I touched on this last week. Um, A federal judge out of Texas passed down a ruling saying that the FDA, the FDA should never have approved mifepristone, which is the abortion pill. Um, It is one of the two pills that has been used to provide medical abortions. The FDA approved it back in 2000. So it's been in use for quite some time. It accounts for over 50% of the country's abortions during the time when it has been authorized for this use. Um, But it's been really interesting to watch conservatives over the last week and a half, couple of weeks in the wake of this ruling, because they're not saying much about it. Um, You might find some of the more uh, radical or more fringe Republicans talking about this, but for the most part, nobody has anything to say about it. And I think it's because they're the dog that finally caught the car that it was chasing, and they don't know what to do with it now that they have it. The car doesn't taste good. Overturning Roe was supposed to hand this issue back to the states. And now we have a federal judge who's taking it a step further and trying to say, no, the states don't even get to decide this. No abortions. (laughs) across the board. So kind of like we had talked about in previous episodes on this topic, it turns into a slippery slope where access to one thing is taken away. We hear this is a state's rights issue. We're not going any further. And then we do start taking steps further. So I pulled some thoughts from various Republican, um, you know, people who hold office, um, people who are aides and donors that show a really interesting take on this issue. So Nancy Mace, who is a representative um, from South Carolina, said, if we can show that we care just a little bit, that we have some compassion, we can show the country our policies are reasonable. But because we keep going down these rabbit holes of extremism, we're just going to keep 
losing. She was specifically talking about access to abortion pills, access to contraceptives, access to um, medical abortions that are early term, and not demonizing these things because she realized realizes that it makes them look crazy. Um, she also added uh, in the wake of these shootings that have happened in Tennessee and in Kentucky recently, that Republicans aren't showing compassion in the wake of mass shootings. Yeah, just thoughts and prayers and then moving right along and hoping that everybody forgets. And also throughout this, they've lost what the last I mean, this quote a minute ago about we just keep losing. They've lost air quotes, the last three election cycles. And they just lost um, that Wisconsin Supreme Court seat. Oh, that was so great. It was. But honestly, they shouldn't have. It's very similar to how the how midterms went last year. Um, Based on historical precedent, Republicans should have cleaned up and yeah, they picked up a narrow majority in the House. But apart from that, There's really nothing to speak to. And it's because they have finally touched an issue that most of the country disagrees with them on. And it's it's a visceral enough conversation that I think it's coming back to bite them in the ass. Hopefully it is Um, to share a little bit more about some of the perspectives coming out of the Republican Party um, and conservative-minded people. The chairwoman of the Republican National Committee has been reportedly showing polling to members of her party, demonstrating that Americans largely accept abortion up to 15 weeks into a pregnancy. Um, A former Republican leadership aide in the House, John Fieri, has actually urged his party in an op-ed to find a defensible position on abortion that included flexibility on abortion pills, allowed early pregnancies to be terminated, and detailed a coherent position on exceptions for rape, incest, and health concerns. He added that Republicans didn't want to do the hard work on abortion. Republicans might finally be finding themselves at the electoral disadvantage that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Do you think people will remember? They remembered in 2022. Will they remember next year? If it continues to stay in the headlines, I mean, right now, this abortion pill debate that you brought up um, going up to the Supreme Court, if it continues to stay front and center, then yes, I think so. I mean, if we only have another year and a half to go until the next election, that's not that much time for stories like this to stay front and center in Americans' minds, not to mention states are going to continue to try to ban abortion. I think on the other side of that, it probably also depends on how long it takes for Republicans to unify and come up with you know, a united front as to how they're going to repackage the party's overall thoughts on all of this and how much leg way they'll make going forward with voters. Because one thing that I think that um, Democrats did really well going into midterms, especially when you're talking about this Wisconsin Supreme Court seat that you brought up, is that they were able to figure out how to create these 
political campaigns that directly catered to more conservative voters and explained to them exactly why, despite their conservative values, the law as they were trying to push forth on the Republican side was not actually aligned with their core values. So there's a lot to think about here with regards to the question that you're asking, I think. But um, as it stands, I think it could go either way. It just depends on how they choose to go forward with this and whether or not it's a successful campaign. I think you raise a good point, Pam. I think the uh, the DNC needs to look at Wisconsin and adopt their style of messaging. Because to be honest with you, Democrats have a messaging problem they have for a long time. Yeah. So that would be really something to see um, the Democratic establishment align behind something like that. Also worth noting, coming up in 2024, we're looking at increasing shares of youth voters. Um, So we're getting to the point where millennials and Gen Zers are going to be making up a substantial portion of the electorate. So it'll be interesting to see, to your point as well, Pam, how the Republican Party pivots to try and account for that, or if they make a successful pivot. Yeah. Yeah. I, they don't have many noticeable young people there on the right that I can really think of that people that really resonate with people. I know there's some young Republicans out there, including a couple of our listeners. Yeah. Um. What's up, Parker? Listen, and that I think that's great. I want. Yeah. I want a sane Republican Party. <laughs> yeah. Have no, to my, have it. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. My point just is that, like, I'm trying to think of like the AOCs of the right who are young and really resonating with people. Not up on Capitol Hill, you see these people, but in in Republican groups around the country, I'm sure they're they're there. I feel like they were betting on Marco Rubio, and Marco Rubio just fumbled to the ball, and now he's too old. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Which better for us because he wasn't all that great either. So, yeah. And I feel I'm trying to think of other prominent younger Republicans that we see a lot. And the only person who's coming to mind for me is Lauren Boebert out of Colorado, which, like, oh, who just practically lost in the midterm. So, I, yeah, you know, she might be out the door next election cycle, Mm -hmm. just like her gun restaurant, Shooter's Grill. While we're waiting for all of that to happen here over the next couple of years, some of us still have to live in places like this. So I wanted to focus on what we think people can consider doing in the meantime. Thinking specifically about what can you do if you disagree with a policy happening in your community or in your country For the purposes of these recommendations, they're all around abortion because that's very topical right now. But um, we're also not going to be sort of rehashing the abortion debate. I think it's pretty well established what we all think on this show. Um, So uh, a really kind of like baseline thing that everybody can do is, of course, to vote and make sure to contact your elected representatives We'll provide links to be able to do that in the show notes. But I wanted to talk about some other examples. And I have a question about this next one for y'all. Protesting. Do we think it helps? I think it can help. I think Americans are lazy asses who do not want to protest. 
if you look at what's been going on over in France in the last month or two, people turned out bigly to protest Macron uh, raising the retirement age over in France. We're talking days of extended, huge protests. You don't see that type of thing happening in America. Yes, people were protesting last summer when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Those protests could have been a lot bigger and a lot longer. You know, fuck me for not going to one of those protests. I, I, I have no room to talk here. But I think Americans just can't be bothered in the way you see people protest in other countries around the world. And I love seeing those major protests around the world. Now, that said, the Macron example in in France isn't the best because he did still push it through. But he also cannot be elected again. So he has nothing to lose. He's he's about to run out his uh, second term and then he's done. I think part of that, too, on the American front is that we're so conditioned to believe that if we miss a day of work, of work, it's really bad. And I think that that's why when you look back to the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests, like that's probably the most significant example of when protesting actually probably did what it was supposed to do. And the reason why so many people turned out for those in multiple cities across the country for multiple days and for multiple weeks is because we didn't have anything better to do. You know, like we could, a lot of us couldn't go to work. A lot of people weren't working. A lot of people were working from home. So it was a lot easier to go out and protest for that. And I think a lot of times protesting tends to take a backseat to just the idea that work is supposed to be our, our life in America and we're spoon fed that. So we tend to put that over a lot of other aspects of life. Yeah. And paid time off is not exactly um, the rule in this country. I think, you know, when you look at countries like France, they get quite a bit more paid time off as a country than we do here. So your point, Pam, it's not even just people thinking it's bad to miss a day of work. It's people being like, I literally can't. I won't be able to put food on the table Mm -hmm. if I miss work. Have y'all ever protested before? (sighs) No, again, fuck me. I mean, I I don't. (laughs) I'm not not trying to shame you. I'm just asking. No, no, no. But I'm happy to admit it because it's something I can do better. I I should be showing up for protests from time to time. Maybe just being younger, I didn't feel as motivated as maybe I would today. Let's say if we're talking like the Prop 8 vote came up when that came up in California, denying gay people the right to marry. There's probably been opportunities over the years where I could have and I I didn't. I think you should. I, I recommend that everybody go out at least once if it's a cause you really believe in. It can be really inspiring to, yeah. to go out there and show your support and talk to like, like-minded people. Good way to make friends too, potentially, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I think a way to put your energy into something that makes it feel like you might you might be moving the needle if, even if it's just a fraction of a percent even if it's just one person saw you out marching in a protest with a big crowd of people and thought oh i wonder what they're protesting and went home and researched it and maybe thought twice about it or had their mind changed um i definitely was hitting the protests really hard, especially after Trump was elected. Um, that was like an every weekend thing there for me for a while. And it felt 
good. And it was a good, I think, healthy way for me to get my frustrations out. Yeah. In a way that was productive and wasn't hurting anybody. Um, yeah. Can't, can't say the same for the January 6th insurrectionists. They kind of, <laughs> they took their frustrations over the line. Yes. And that probably continued to haunt them because they were afraid the FBI was going to come after them at some point. Whereas, you know, with a good protest, you don't have to worry about that. And I like the idea of using it, you know, selfishly as a way to get your frustrations out. And then you might feel better at the end of the day, like, oh, it's not just me who has been stressed about this shit. There's many other people out there, too. And I got to meet a lot of them today. Something else that I think people could look into is seeking out community support opportunities that might exist. Um, An example of one that I found that is really interesting is an abortion advocacy group in Mexico called Las Libres. Um, They have actually been assisting women in Mexico with obtaining home abortions since 2000. And in the wake of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, Las Libres announced that they were going to be coordinating plans to help women in the U.S., um, safely end their pregnancies. It sounds like they were going to be working primarily by getting mifepristone um, into the hands of these women. And what's kind of, I mean, it's heartbreaking, but it's also beautiful solidarity. Previously, the roles were reversed where abortions were illegal and, and very hard to get in Mexico. So there were groups on this side of the border, helping Mexican women get safe abortions. And now there are groups in Mexico that are looking to help American women obtain safe abortions. So trying to find some kind of support in your community, even if it's not something that's like a direct correlation to helping you or your loved one find abortion access, even if it's just support to help you get somewhere where you can get the procedure done or you can get, you know, the the medicinal procedure done, I think is huge. There's I found this is so funny. It is an organization called Advocates for Youth and it's called the Condom Collective. Um, they actually distribute uh, around a million condoms on college campuses every year. I will say I collected one too many protector wand condoms at Harry <laughs> Potter conferences. It was the, the pun was it was a little too much after the first few that I received there. Great idea, though. Yeah. For all conferences. That's amazing. I never got one of those condoms. Yeah, I never got one either. Feel left I'm out. I'm sure in your in your uh, swag bag, they were there one <laughs> year too. Maybe they... Uh, I don't know. Maybe they were just giving them out to the guys. I guess maybe it was just maybe that simple. Maybe they knew the demographic was mostly gays. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But also, like, listen, women need condoms too. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And condoms are pricey. Yeah. But do you call your area a wand? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. Protect your Hermione bag. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hermione's bottomless purse. <laughs> that's that's actually exactly what a vagina is, Andrew. Oh, uh, um, I don't know if you were curious, but it's it's just a bottomless hole. There's a missed opportunity there for Chamber of Secrets to be used. I'm just there. You go protect your there. chamber. Yeah, protect your <laughs> chamber. 
Um, you know, or something else like, you know, and this is just an area of kind of personal preference. Um, but hey, you know, if uh, ladies, you can always just refuse to have sex without condoms. That that, you know, that is, I think, a small step that can be taken personally. It's not necessarily, you know, not to say that there's like a moral imperative to do that. But, you know, if you're if you're at a point in your life where you're, you know, maybe not looking to have a baby and you're having sex, tell those dudes they got to wrap it. Be like, wrap it or go get a vasectomy. I think also a couple of other quick things here. Um, you can support efforts to broaden access to birth control. The FDA is actually going to be convening a panel in May of this year to decide whether to approve the first over-the-counter birth control pill that won't require a doctor's prescription to get. Um, usually when the FDA and other federal organizations have panels like this, they usually have um, an area where public comment can be left for a certain period of time. So as we get closer to that, we'll definitely provide that resource. That's a really quick and easy way to get your voice out there and add um, and lend your name to support. Um, like I said earlier, men can also consider getting vasectomies. Um, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, Andrew, you don't need to. <laughs> I know. It's so great. It's so great. I love being gay. In solidarity, he might, though, one day decide. <laughs> no, I think I'm good. I mean, it's reversible. Yeah, I That's did. Nice um, oh, it is? Oh. It yeah. is, yeah. Also, like, what difference does it make? <laughs> I just don't want the, the. I know it's an easy surgery, but I just don't want that. What difference snip, does it make? Snip. Well, yeah, yeah why I, mean, I? Are you trying to get somebody pregnant? Because No. No. Oh, I see what. Yeah, but why? But, but. Uh, no, I have pledged to be a gold star, <laughs> and for that reason, I have no reason to do this. Wait. If you two want to pay me or something to do it for like a fun millennial bit, sure. But okay, it's free in some places, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Depending. But what am I getting out of this besides going to a doctor? You're doing it for the show. <laughs> no, this isn't for the show. <laughs> Patreon yes, exclusive. Andrew gets a vasectomy. I don't like being attacked right now. Let's, let's continue. No, average cost of vasectomy in Las Vegas. Justin said it's not that bad. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm just saying, and I encourage it. I'm just saying I personally have no reason for this. That's fair. I know somebody else, actually, who, who got one within the last year, and uh, I fully supported it because they can't afford another kid. Andrew, the average cost in Vegas is $572. Oh, that's nothing. Okay, so that, that goes to the doctor. What do I get out of this? <laughs> Another $572? Uh, exclusive content to drive subscribers to our Patreon. Please, that's what you let's move on. I got a vasectomy and you can too. <laughs> I'm in my parents' house right now. We don't need to discuss this right oh, now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> They're going to have so many questions if they hear that. They're like, what? Um, but what's really interesting is um, some plan, some Planned Parenthood facilities have started offering vasectomies because the demand went through the roof after Roe fell last year. So, you know, typically you might think of Planned Parenthood as 
somewhere that only provided women's health care. Um, but men, yeah. you, you can definitely get care there is too, or as well. And then something that I feel like is maybe the most limited option for people is moving. Um, you brought this up earlier, Andrew. I wanted to see, you know, there are obviously a lot of complications and implications that come with moving across state lines. So I wanted to ask this group, would we move? If things got really bad in my state, yes, I would move. But I'm also someone who's very open to moving. I don't feel tethered to any one particular state for for long periods. Uh, I mean, I have, but if it if push came to shove, I would be willing to move because I do feel untethered. Um, so yeah, but I, I I really understand why people can't do that. It's family concerns, money concerns, job concerns. Like, there's so many reasons. That would stop people. So I I get it. I get the position people are in. I know, Laura, you have serious. Well, you say seriously considered moving at times, but your family's there in Georgia. Your work is there in Georgia. You you and Mark have a life there. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of considerations that come with it. But um, and this might be the first time I've said it on the show, but we (gasps) are looking to move (gasps) out of state. Sometime in the next few years, it's not an imminent thing, but it is something that we are looking towards doing um, because of, honestly, some of the very concerns that (laughs) have been brought up on this show today, um, but also because we want to live somewhere that has better mass transit. We want to live somewhere that's closer to other major cities and it makes me really sad because I love Atlanta. If I could pick Atlanta yeah. up and take it with me wherever I wanted to go, that would be optimal. Um, but there are just there are too many other considerations at play outside of this being a city that I love. So it is on the table. <laughs> That's super valid, okay. though, for multiple reasons. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't blame you if you didn't, though, because the family, you've you've built a life there. Yeah. I would totally understand if you stayed there. Plus, you are in that beautiful blue bubble. So, you know, in, in some ways, you're kind of protected. Yeah. We're insulated until we take yes. two steps outside the perimeter. And then it's and, Trump flags everywhere. Yeah. And then it's just Yalkaida and... <laughs> Yalkaida. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Pam, I know that you're in an optimal uh, geographical location, but if the tables were turned, would you move? I mean, I've always said that I'm open to moving because I think that I can fortunately do my job from anywhere. So yeah, maybe if things were really bad, I would seriously consider it. I take great pleasure in being in Nevada because I'm one of those libtards who have come over here and have, have made the state more blue. So I uh, I would hate to leave and not contribute some blue votes to the yeah. state we in the future. We haven't talked about this, but I know we've kicked the idea around of talking about the animosity towards transplants in certain cities that yeah. are being, you know, um, influxed by people trying to leave more expensive bluer states. So maybe that's something to circle back to at some point. Mm hmm. I'd be curious to hear from all of you at home, you know, what approaches have you found to exist in the current climate and not feel like ripping your hair out all the time? Um, so reach out, millennialshow at gmail.com. 
uh, or you can use the confessional if that's more your vibe. But uh, hopefully millennial helps a little bit. Yeah. Sometimes we hear stuff like that about both podcasts that we do. It's a source of comfort sometimes. Well, we were just talking about protest a few minutes ago. And Pam, I feel like this uh, (laughs) transitions nicely into your story. So to Laura's point, Hollywood might actually be on the brink of its own protest. And this is as a result of the Writers Guild of America's writers strike, also known as the WGA. When we were talking about doing this segment, and when I was planning it out, they were actually still in the process of having all of their members vote as to whether or not they wanted to authorize a strike. And yesterday, On Monday, April 17th, the votes came in and they have authorized to strike as a result of a couple of different things. Mainly, this comes as the WGA is in contract negotiations. Contract negotiations come up every three years. So it's nothing really anything new, but it is still very significant. And even though this is very much like an entertainment business story, it could potentially have an effect on anybody that consumes uh, television and film that both need writers to create the things that we love. So something that's important to note about this is that despite the fact that the WGA has voted to authorize a strike, it doesn't necessarily mean that a strike will happen. The WGA actually voted to authorize a strike back in 2017, but the strike never actually occurred because they ultimately ended up reaching an agreement with the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, also known as the AMPTP. And they're the ones that negotiate on behalf of all of the major studios. So that's everything from Amazon, Netflix, and Disney to um, WB and HBO. So the WGA and the AMPTP have until the current WGA contract ends on May 1st in just about two weeks to come to an agreement before the strike officially kicks off. And if they don't, we will see Hollywood come to a standstill very quickly. And this is pretty significant because the last time the WGA writers went on strike was back in 2007. When this happened, the strike lasted about 100 days and it took quite a toll on the landscape of television overall. Although this also means that writers who work on screenplays for films are also going to be striking, you don't really tend to see the effects that this has in cinema as much as you do on television because there's a longer log time for movies. So when it comes to movies, we might see a little bit of a hit If a strike actually happens in about two years or so, you start hearing about movies that are set to come out in uh, 2024 and uh, 2025, shifting their release dates to further down the road. That'll likely be as a result of the writer's strike, but it won't affect any films that are already in the can set to come out in 2023. What are the WG? a member is asking for. It's really not very much, but you know, everybody's greedy in Hollywood. So it makes sense. that They're basically fighting for really basic rights here. Uh, basically, what they want is an increase in the minimum in minimum pay. Currently, 49% of writers work at minimum. And this is actually up from 33% in the last 10 years. So there's a lot of people that are not making nearly enough to live off of. And if you go on Twitter and search for um, screenwriters that have been commenting on striking. A lot of them are also talking about just how many writers in Hollywood actually have to take out second jobs in order to just make ends meet, despite the fact that they're working in Hollywood and supposedly living the dream. 
So one of the big reasons why writers are making less overall is also because streaming favors shorter episode runs per season. So as TV fans, we've talked about how much it sucks that we're only getting maybe an average of eight episodes, but it's way harder when you're a writer that is only contracted to write eight episodes versus the traditional 22 to 24 episode run that we used to see in broadcasting back in the day. Yeah, and obviously the the money that they make from one of these shows seasons, that's not going to equal a yearly salary unless right. maybe you're a head writer. Exactly. For many of them, they're making a salary that's only worth like three months and they got to find other work to your point about the second job mm-hmm. throughout the year. Yeah. And to that point as well, you know, residuals are also on the table right now. When residuals were first implemented for streaming, this was when streaming was still in its infancy. And Hollywood really cut a lot of these streaming services some slack because they were still kind of growing. Nobody really knew if money was going to be made or what level money was going to be made from entities like Netflix, for example. So WGA members are also looking for better residual rates as a result of, you know, the old structure needing to be updated. That's maybe going to be a little bit hard here. And this is also probably why we might see a strike because we've seen in headlines that we talked about in the show how streaming services are actually like cutting back and trying to cut corners when it comes to uh, residuals. That's why you're starting to see HBO Max, for example, pull a lot of titles because they don't want to pay writers residuals for keeping those titles it's up. It's such a messy, shitty business. Oh it is God. really messy. And like back in the day when a show like Friends would be a hit and continue to be a hit through reruns, writers would get residual checks. Whereas now they don't see that either with reruns. They're getting very, very, very small checks. Like I saw one tweet say like they get residual checks of a dollar twenty-five. They're really yeah, not getting paid ahead. anything anymore. It's crazy. Yeah. There's one uh, somebody on TikTok, I can't remember who, but they like one of the things that they do is they just sit there and like open residual checks. And it's so sad to see how small it's like a huge stack of residual checks, and it's like a dollar fifty. Oh my God. I mean that. Those rates kind of remind me of what people in the service industry get paid, you know, especially if they work in a job where they can make tips, you know, depending on the state that you live in, like here in Georgia, you'll make like $2 an hour or something like that. Like it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I I remember the first time I actually learned about that is I was reading that book nickel and dimed in high school. And it just shocked me that they could factor in tips like that when tips aren't guaranteed. Right. You know, tips into an hourly rate. It was just insane to me. That's why you tip in cash, kids, so that your (laughs) server does not have to declare that on their taxes. Wink. (laughs) Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) The last thing the WGA members are asking for is increased contribution to health and pension plans. So again, this is not anything that is like super crazy out of the ordinary. If you guys listened to the episode we did where we were talking about the potential for an IATSE strike, it was very similar things that they were asking for. But it's very clear that, you know, other entities in Hollywood really don't like to budge when it comes to giving away more money to the people that actually make sure their shows function. So it is kind of sad that we've come to this point. And you you might be asking yourself as a listener, well, then why do these people who write continue to write if Hollywood is this shitty? And the answer is they think they can get to a better position 
eventually. I mean, a lot of these people grew up with like so many of us with a dream to work in some sort of field. And people have really tried to put in many years in Hollywood and try to get ahead and they still can't for reasons like this. Um, And they still want to see the best for the industry. And of course, it's still incredibly fulfilling to get a great job on a big show or maybe get a book deal of your own. Like there's a lot of potential there. It's what one person I definitely recommend following on Twitter is Alana Bennett, A-L-A-N-N-A-B-E-N-N-E-T-T. And she's been tweeting a lot about this, showing being very vulnerable in terms of what it's like to be a writer in Hollywood. For example, a tweet she sent out about a week ago. Over the past three years, I've been in three writers rooms, optioned two pilots, sold a studio feature on a pitch and wrote and rewrote and polished it and more. None of that stopped me from having to go on EBT for a while. The current system is unsustainable. Vote yes to author strikes. So she said this before it was authorized. But her point, of course, was that you can work many jobs in Hollywood and still be broke. And it's just really sad because you don't. I mean, like, Pam, you said, you know, Hollywood from outside the bubble, you see it as this glamorous world, the palm trees, the Ferraris, the high rise condos overlooking all of Los Angeles. It's like this beautiful, glamorous right, but uh, life. But for so many people in Hollywood, it is not that life. It's multiple jobs. It's being rejected left and right. It's being treated like shit. It's, it's just a brutal, brutal place. Mm-hmm. And to that point, uh, somebody else that I uh, really enjoy following, I also follow Alana Bennett on Twitter, but uh, Karina Aldi McKenzie, she uh, most recently was spearheading Roswell, New Mexico, New Mexico around the CW, and she's written for a lot of CW shows in the past. She also had a really great tweet, tweet where she was talking about how, you know, she's being creatively fulfilled and it's a great life if you can make it work, but it's not easy and it's not sustainable long-term. And it really is crazy to hear that from somebody like her, for example, who was literally running a show on a major cable network to hear that, like, even she feels like it's not a sustainable life long-term is really disheartening, but that's a really good reason why uh, stuff like this is really important. It's really important to pay attention to it too. Agreed. So uh, I wanted to touch a little bit about on what happens if a strike actually moves forward. This is, again, of course, assuming that uh, negotiations don't go as planned within the next two weeks. So we already talked a little bit about why we would not see the effects of a, a strike on the film industry very soon. Uh, But one place that you're really going to start noticing it right away is specifically on late night television shows. And this is because there's a way quicker turnaround with the scripts here. So you're probably going to see these shows shut down really fast. um, Or when they come back, the shows will probably not look like what you're normally used to as far as monologues and full-blown segments, sometimes even guests uh, fall through the wayside as well, because actors are weary of crossing a picket line, so to speak, even when it comes to going on late night as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. On the scripted television side, shows will still be able to produce and shoot any episode that is already written prior to when work ceases. But the big difference here is that there will be no writers on site when these episodes are filmed. And again, that doesn't sound very dramatic. But when you think about how a production works, there's always a writer 
on site and script changes happen at the drop of a hat. So you might not even be getting the best episode possible because there will be no writer there to make sure that, you know, the story is moving along properly or that any loose ends that they might not have caught in the writer's room don't get caught as they are shooting. Once the shows run out of scripts to shoot, the series will shut down production, which could lead to shorter seasons. And in the event of a prolonged strike, this could also affect when your favorite shows come back from break. So we might see, you know, instead of shows coming back in September, we might not see them come back till October, November, and even then the seasons might be way shorter. Like I said at the beginning of this segment, the last time we saw an actual writer strike happen was back in 2007. And I thought it would be fun to kind of reminisce on what we saw the last time this happened, especially if the details are fuzzy for some of you, which I know that they were definitely fuzzy for me until I was researching all of this. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that did happen. (laughs) So from a purely financial standpoint, Hollywood took a hit to the tune of an estimated $2.1 billion over the course of the 100 days of the writers were on strike. So definitely money talks. And that's probably why the strike didn't go on for longer than it did. We also saw a huge spike in reality television because it's unscripted. So get ready to see more reality TV on your screens if writers do end up striking, Uh, which is, again, you know, not all reality TV is great. You've also got, this is a fun fact, the writer strike to thank for The Apprentice season two and any subsequent seasons that The Apprentice saw. Uh, season one notoriously tanked, despite what Donald Trump would want you to believe. But the studios were actually so desperate for new content that they ended up renewing the show for a second season. And because of the celebrity twist angle that they implemented in season two, The Apprentice really took off and it became the juggernaut hit that we kind of know today or remember today. I'm not afraid to admit I used to be a huge Apprentice fan back in the day. I loved that show. It was a big show. show. Yeah, I had a Donald Trump bobblehead that was like Apprentice themed and you press the notepad and it said you're fired on his desk. Did the sound effect. Mm -hmm. Money, 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 money. Used to do that when we were podcasting and you were annoyed with somebody, you would be like, (laughs) fired. so funny. (laughs) Oh, the you're fired. That was the staples button, wasn't it? Was that the staples button? Uh, okay. Maybe. Yeah, now I don't know. Our listeners can remind us. Yeah, you might fi- be right. You're fired sounds like a Donaldism, but. Yeah. No, you're uh, the staples button was like, you're done or uh, whatever. <laughs> well, I, re- I had one of those staples buttons, too. I think they were giving them out with like a certain purchase. The staples button. What the hell did what that did say? It say? Easy. That was easy. Oh, that, that was, was easy. easy. Wow. Yeah, they that got rid easy. of that catchphrase fast. Because nothing's easy anymore. It's like this is aged terribly. Right. <laughs> it's so interesting, Pam, that you bring up the rise in reality television. I didn't make this connection. And it, the details are also kind of fuzzy for me on this. But this was my freshman year of college. And I remember me and all my friends and my roommate watching a lot of reality TV. And it occurs to me now that that's because there was nothing else on. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, reality TV has never gone away since then. If anything, it's still more popular than ever. So what we're probably going to see this time around is uh, seasons happening in quicker succession. So whereas before you might have only seen maybe one or two seasons of your favorite reality TV show happen every television slate, you might now see three or maybe even four, depending on how desperate studios get. 
Also relevant to the interests of the hosts on this show, we lost out on two additional episodes of Breaking Bad Season 1. This is going back to shorter seasons as a result of the writing strike. I know Justin in the Discord is also saying that the writer's strike ruined Season 3 of Lost. I know a lot of people have talked about Lost as well in the context of the writer's strike in 2007. (laughs) Wow, I didn't know that about Breaking Bad. First of all, I didn't know that Breaking Bad season one was in 2007. Well, it was being written in 2007, oh, I think. Okay. And then it premiered in 2008, I think. Right. So it had already been like written and shot. And then. Yeah. Where where I really noticed it is in the point you're about to bring up, because I used to watch a lot of late night TV back in 2007. Yes. So like I said earlier, late night is where we're going to start to see the hit take its place first. Late night shows had to get super creative in 2007, the last time we saw a writer's strike. Um, They did take a break to honor the strike, but after a couple of weeks, the late night shows started coming back. So both Leno and O'Brien announced that they would be returning with episodes after the new year because the writer's strike happened towards the end of 2007 and then bled into 2008. So like 2007 slash 2008 they did face a little bit of criticism for announcing that they would be coming back but they made it a point to say that they were standing with the writers and also cited non-writing staff facing layoffs as a main reason for why they were going to come back in the show notes i linked to an article that kind of does a really good job of highlighting what Conan O'Brien did around this time. His show in particular, I have vague recollections of being a little bit zany during the writer's strike time. Like he would give tours of the studio and he would like interview production. They basically just like tried to create their own bits and sometimes it was good and sometimes it was not great. What do you remember about this, Andrew? The best way I can compare it is it, it felt like they lost the power, like the electrical. It just it felt like one of those things where it's like we we couldn't shoot with the audience and the lights, So we're shooting in the dark, so to speak. It just felt it was fascinating to watch because they were really scrambling to come up with something. And I, th- I guess one of the most interesting parts about it is it really exposed what these comedians are really like without writing teams. Like, I have always found Conan O'Brien to be a genuinely funny guy. So he was able to make it work well. But when you strip away their writers, who are the reason they are as funny, you you might agree or disagree with that, then you really see the type of person that they are, the type of entertainer they are. So I just really appreciated it from that expe- that perspective. Like, I guess kind of in some ways, it was like a podcast. This just felt like a more raw show, a more homegrown show, maybe is the best way to describe it. Late Night has be- is less popular than it was in 2007, so I wonder if they'll even try to air new episodes if, if fewer people have been watching anyway. To that point, I think that like I almost kind of feel like Late Night shows today are maybe more predisposed to do a little bit better just because they already had to pivot once as a result of the pandemic. So maybe that kind of sets them up very nicely to get a little bit more creative. And I think like when you look at the shows that Late Night was creating during the pandemic, you really saw people start to sink or swim for better or for worse. I think um, Trevor Noah, we, we don't have him anymore. Oh, like He's still alive, but you know, he's like not part of the Daily Show anymore. But I think he's a really great example of somebody that pivoted away from 
what we know the daily show to be and really created something that worked really well that didn't look anything like what we were used to seeing. So I would really m- miss last week tonight if uh, the mm, strike happened. Yeah. Because that's, that's a current topical show that I actually do tune and into. And he's not on for the whole year either. John, Ol- uh, John Oliver's Right. Not. He yeah. takes some time so, off. Yeah. And he's only Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's really the only show of that vein that I watch regularly. But I will say I don't watch it live. Or I mean, I don't watch it when it's broadcasting, excuse me. Yeah, um, neither do I. I, I catch mm-hmm. it after the fact and just stream it. I wonder if that's more of the typical behavior for people now. I do not treat late night shows as appointment television. I catch it the next day. <laughs> yeah. No, like Justin mentioned, a lot of people watch the late night stuff on YouTube the day after. I've done that from time to time, but I, I don't even bother with it really anymore unless it's an interview I'm dying to see. But mm-hmm. even these days, like the late night interviews, they're just softball interviews, just like the daytime ones are on The View. So to round up the late night here really quickly, Letterman and Ferguson also returned, but they were actually able to return with their writers on staff. And this is actually because Letterman owned his own independent production company at the time. And his production company was able to strike an interim agreement with WGA that allowed this to happen, that honored what they were trying to get out of the AMPTP. So that's kind of a little interesting tidbit. Um, And then finally, to round things off, Colbert and uh, Stewart also returned for their respective shows on Comedy Central because they were still over there doing The Daily Show and The Colbert Report, respectively, at the time. But to show respect for their writing staff, they actually ended up doing a little tongue-in-cheek thing and rebranding to A Daily Show with Jon Stewart and The Colbert (laughs) Report with two hard T's, respectively. Interestingly for them, they actually saw a ratings boost during the writer's strike, but this is a direct result of the election coverage that they were able to do on their own at this time. Yeah, again, like that's a great example of like sink or swim. And to some extent, I I guess people just wanted to watch a train wreck, like just to see what it would be like without the writers. I think that's why I tuned in. And there was a lot of like, as I was researching this, I did notice that a lot of the late night shows also did a lot of like politician guests as well, probably because they were a lot easier to get than actors and stuff. That makes a lot of sense. So that's what we've potentially got in store unless an agreement is met in uh, about two weeks. And uh, we'll keep you all posted if that ends up happening. And that concludes our episode for today. But Pam, Laura, and I will continue recording. We'll be doing an After Dark installment just for our patrons this week. Pam, I know you've been talking a lot, but do you want to tease what we've got coming up in After Dark just briefly? Sure. We're going to be talking about trigger warnings as a result of this article we found in the New York Times about Cornell students wanting teachers to start including trigger warnings on their syllabuses. Yeah, and there was some backlash there. And I think we might be a little split on this panel about uh, trigger warnings. So Trigger warning on the trigger warning. We'll be talking about trigger warnings. So that'll be at patreon.com slash millennial this week. We really appreciate everybody's support. We could not do this without you. You, The reason is you, to quote Hoobastank, and one wow. of my favorite songs. I just heard that song for the first time in such a long time on the radio. What a throwback. Oh, my God. If I don't hear it once a month, I'm disappointed. Wow. I, I, like, I, I really like you. that song. Okay. Yeah. The race has it. Yeah. The reason is you. 
patrons and listeners. We really appreciate you. We also have this new executive producer tier level where you can get inside access to two of our planning meetings per month, and you can listen to them live on Fridays, including this Friday, or listen to them on Patreon after the fact. And they go for anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes, and they're always a good time. So definitely check those out. There's many more benefits waiting for you, too, at patreon.com slash millennial. Remember, the reason is you. Time for some recommendations. I want to recommend an artist I've been listening to. I shared them on my Instagram story because they dropped a new single, and I've been really into this new single. Uh, The band is Greta Van Fleet. The first time I heard these guys on Spotify, Spotify started putting them in my daily mixes. I was like, this must be a classic rock band. I just never heard of. They sounded like they were, this album was from the 70s or 80s, but no. They're present day. They're heavily inspired by Led Zeppelin. No doubt about that. Um, But I really, really like them. Like I said, they just released their first single from an upcoming album. And I'm really impressed by it. And I'm really relieved because they only have two albums out. And like I'm listening to their previous stuff a little too much. So I'm very excited to have some new Greta to listen to. And uh, I look forward to going to one of those one of their concerts on their upcoming tour and definitely getting contact high because there's no way most people in these audiences are not stoned for the entire concert. (laughs) But I don't smoke, but I will get contact high there. I'm willing to take that sacrifice. It's okay, Andrew. If you aren't they going to be at Shaking These, weren't you saying that? Yes, in your neck of the woods. So what you can do is you can come down and I can help you get primed for the contact high that you're about to get. By getting okay, yeah, yeah. Fine. we won't. I we'll won't practice. pull on that thread. <laughs> uh, I don't want. No, I don't like it. I, it just doesn't do anything for me. I'll drink though. I'll drink though. Okay. All right. Well, I want to recommend Capcom's Resident Evil Four remake. They've been remaking the Resident Evil games, and while I never played these when they were initially um, coming out. They're something that I've really gotten into. We've, Me and Mark have been playing them together. And by we've been playing them together, I mean he plays and I watch and offer commentary. Um, but this remake is really, really good. I've been enjoying it. It's like right up my like horror zombie alley. So if you're into that kind of thing, definitely recommend it. And for anyone who is currently playing this game, I'll just say fucking Ashley get out of the way and you'll understand what I mean I wanted to recommend Wet and Wild's breakup proof liner I'm always on the hunt for a new liquid liner that's not going to break the bank and this one fits the bill it's like five or six bucks depending on where you pick it up and it's got a really nice little brush tip which I really like feels really lush and nice it's easy to work with and more importantly it's waterproof which is so important for me any time of the year, but it is especially important going into the summer months when everyone's sweating and stuff like that. So if you're looking for a new liquid liner to pop into your makeup bag, I would recommend checking that one out. Sounds good. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. Make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode. And if you have any feedback about today's episode, you can write to millennialshow at gmail.com or you can use the contact form or anonymous the anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. Last but not least, do follow us on social media. We're Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then over on the still uncanceled TikTok, we are Millennial Pod. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.